Welcome to the show. In this one, I have a conversation with Alaskan artist Duke Russell. Growing up in Anchorage in the 1970s, Duke would draw everything he could in downtown Anchorage. At that time, he and his dad were living in an apartment above a bar called Ruthie's 49er, which would later become Darwin's theory. Duke would sell his paintings in downtown Anchorage for a dollar, in addition to working and going to school. A lot of his youth was also spent taking care of his alcoholic father. It was this upbringing, in a past version of Anchorage, that continues to influence his art. Today, Duke's art can be seen all over the city of Anchorage, from restaurants to banks to local theaters and the Anchorage Museum. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the company man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Aquila Space. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. Okay, back to Duke Russell. Duke has been in the Alaska art scene for over 50 years now. In that time, he's experienced a lot of failures, growth, and success. He's not afraid to voice his frustrations, and he's not afraid to talk about the lessons he's learned. In fact, he's able to find humor in most things. In this conversation, we get a glimpse of how Duke's mind works. It considers everything, the importance of telling the truth and the transient nature of life, how life is constantly in flux, and the more we accept that, the more we're in rhythm with it. So here he is, Duke Russell. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. So the other day when we were on the phone, Setting this conversation up, you said that you have a scooter that you ride around town and that everyone is always trying to race you. Yeah. Yeah. And I look pretty threatening, you know, uh, with my with my artistic uh, profile and everything. No, I, I don't know what it is. I, I think that um, when they see me tucked behind the small windshield. And I look like fucking Pee Wee Herman going down the street. They're just like, I got to take this fool on, you know? And I just, you know, I uh, I cruise around in my car sometimes, uh, you know, just to the grocery store. And I, I don't have to commute or anything. So I'm not in it like everybody else. So what I've noticed after kind of a, a, a large hiatus of kind of being super, you know, isolated before this ever happened. But, you know, is like things change without me getting the memo and so people have gone just like a little more crazy uh without me getting the the memo on that and and so i'm reminded 
when I'm out on the streets, you know, and especially now that I'm, I'm really kind of deliberately going everywhere. Um, you know, it's a whole different, it's a whole different experience. Everybody's very courteous and it's like, I'm riding a fucking unicorn down the street, you know, they're <laughs> waving and, and they're like, oh my God. And all these like cute, you know, like cute little kids, you know, want to jump on my scooter, you know, and ride with me off to the sunset. So it's the new van, right? You know, uh, who needs a, who needs a panel van now? Uh, you know, with to a free candy, you know, written on the outside of it and stuff. But, uh, no, seriously, the, the scooter has been, uh, a real informative, uh, tool for me. And I, it started out as like, well, what am I doing? I, I can't just ride around Lake Spinard my entire life. I have to, you know, branch out, you know, because I just love that ride around Lake Hood and that, uh, it's so, uh, just know, feels like someplace else, you know? Um, and it's not like, you know, I just like to take these little small mental vacations, you know, and just kind of pretend that I'm in a new town or something, you know, and try to look at it with those eyes of like, what if I was traveling right now and I was trying to navigate to whatever, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just try to remove yourself from, ah, this is, this is the town I've lived in for 50 years, you know? So, uh, new eyes, new, new perspectives. And, and I've gone through an evolution of, of attitude as well. You know, I started out kind of judgy and I would look, look at these scrappy places and go, oh my God, you know, I wouldn't ever want to you know, live here or whatever. But, you know, going back a few times and realizing that, you know, it's just a style choice. You know, you got your roundup lawns with the American flag out front, <clears throat> you know, absolutely not one single dandelion. Everything's all cropped and trimmed and, and, the house is painted gray or red, white, and blue, and, and their cars are white and spotless. And, you know, that's their trip. That's, that's what they're doing. And on the other side of that coin, you got, you got the kind of more scrappier Alaskan homesteady types who've got the four wheelers and the this and the that, and, you know, their Botrytis outside their, their house, and they don't give a, a fuck about it. So, you know, I say, let them be, who they are you know everybody's on the journey and i i try to see beauty in it you know um i i do get scared when i see a house like all alone and it the grass is all grown up and the you know or like a burned up trailer you know mm -hmm. in a trailer park and it's just sitting there and, and people driving by it every day on their way to their onto their trailer it, it's it's kind of um like why doesn't somebody get rid of that thing you know i mean that I'm sure it was a tragic night, you know, like it happened in one night. <laughs> well, you know, like what, you know, it maybe it happened six months ago, but the, the thing's still there. And I, I'm just kind of like being empathetic to the people that maybe were, you know, experienced the loss. Maybe there was tragedy, you know, somebody lost their life. Uh, you don't know, you know, but the idea okay. is to process this and and like almost like a psychotherapy kind of thing like really internalize the the reality of what is going on you know so if you drove down every street in anchorage you're going to slowly uh start making little check marks 
and you may not know what kind of category to put it in, but you saw that before somewhere else. You saw that before somewhere else, or you didn't. It's an anomaly, you know, and it's like these really unique roof lines over in Boniface, you know, it's kind of seemed like the trend in the 70s, but it's a time marker, you know, and, and these things are, to me, uh, interesting in the construct of the growth of our town. How did it grow? You know, for a long time, the end of Northern Lights was at Boniface, and it turned into Campbell Airstrip Road that went up to Stuckigan Heights and the Botanical Gardens and what we know as Baxter Road today. But, uh, you know, there are maps at the museum that have like a 1950 map, roadmap of Anchorage is a very informative map because of what it doesn't show. And, uh, and I carry that across when I talk to people. You know, I don't always listen to what they're saying, but I'm more interested in what they're not saying, you know, and I, I'm looking at the negative spaces in their conversation. What kinds of things do people not say? Oh, the, the stuff I want to hear, the embarrassing parts. And you're okay talking about that stuff? Um, it depends. It, no, I don't like, I don't like people dumping personal stuff on me, you know, because that's personal, you know? Yeah. Um, but like an Instagram profile, you know, look at us camping, look at us getting along in the van that we live in, look at us, you know, aren't you jealous of this thing? And then, and then they just leaving out all the, all the shitty bits. Mm -hmm. It's just the highlight reel. Right, right. And I think people are trained for that. And I'm saying this now from my own analysis of myself of like how in my early 20s and 30s, I wanted to be this big artist. I wanted to make a name for myself. And I was really doing everything, like just dancing for my dinner, you know, just everything I could think of to do, uh, you know, and the work to, to be known. To, to be noticed but I what I wasn't really facing off with you know is 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 some of the things uh where you realize you're just trying to try, trying to get back to normal and and uh you know you're wasting a lot of time sort of trying to compensate for uh glaringly obvious things that 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 sort of moments in your life that kind of took you from the mainstream into a more unique experience and uh and so that could be you know tragic you know in my case it was just kind of you know real you know food insecure and just moving around and good god knows what's going to happen next or whatever but it, it did inform me to be survive and and to to be quick on my feet um but now i'm really just focusing on the work and i don't really attend to what people think as much you know i don't ever want to insult anyone i just you know um you know they're they're going to do their trip and they're going to like say things uh positive and negative about you know what i do um you know i just i'm just more focused into the work and and being that i that's all i do more or less you know i'm not on the cross any saying that but you know um but being that i i do spend a lot of time painting and working and on on these things uh, there's not a lot of other things I'd rather be doing. So, you know, I mean, when I see people out in the world, I'm at odds most of the time, mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, I have some tenets of, of, you know, people are, are afraid of automation and, and all this. There's so much work to be done. You know, there's so much competency to obtain, 
you know, just that, you know, uh, doing what you say you're going to do, you know, have the competency to do it, have the, have the capacity to bring something to the table, you know, be a giver, not a taker, uh, you know, these, these are, you know, food, shelter, and clothing, and then we can do, when dick around, do some of this other stuff, but, you know, we really need to, to get back to almost like this sort of uh, a tribalness of sorts of, 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 of watching out for each other, you know, helping, you know, with the food and, and just, you know, having a listening ear and all that. I think now more than ever, we're going to rely on these very humanistic things to fill the, the void, you know, because I think we were chasing all the money down the street to buy this and buy that, the Katie Spade purses. And I, I can't relate to a lot of it, you know, even, you know, as a parent, you know, when I see a parent with with a, a lot of ink on their body, I wonder, like... You mean tattoos? Yeah. Are they getting enough food for the children, you know? And are the parents being children themselves, you know, and not raising their children and not having a mature mind, you know? And I think this is something that's really important because we focus on age when we should focus on maturity. You know, when we can have delayed gratification, et cetera, you know. Do you think that you have that mindset because throughout your life as an artist, you've recognized the phoniness in people? Um, well, I think as you get older, when you get bamboozled like X amount of times, you know, you really start, you know, paying attention. And I, I tell you what, I, I hate getting sideswiped. And so sideswiped is something that a good friend can do to you. Uh, it can be a flake out on an agreement, you know, or something like that, or, or like get, get, get attacked or not attacked, but, you know, uh, called out for something that, that seems unjustified. Mm -hmm. Um, that kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so, so as you get older, you, you kind of feel like you've seen the show before, you know, and it really is. I mean, there, there's only some, like when you're talking about foreign language, you know, uh, or communication, they're really fundamentals, right? Mm -hmm. Where, where to, where to eat, where to shit, where to sleep, you know, I mean, it's all real basic stuff. Um, and, and so that, that being able to, I lost my point now. Um, shit. There it goes. That's okay. We were talking about, or, or I'd mentioned what could be perceived as the phoniness in people. And maybe that's where that mindset came from. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Getting back. Thanks. The truth is what I was getting. Oh, that was my next thing. You know, the truth is the truth. Now that doesn't mean like radical honesty into me, you know, because that means like you just have no filter and da da da. You know, you have to have a filter. You have to have kind of a, a context to, to say certain things. Uh, but the truth, like when you're painting a painting and if you're delusional, you're going, wow, that looks good. And just like one of those singers on American, American, uh, talent, America's got talent, you know, it's like somebody should have told them a long time ago, they're off pitch and it doesn't sound very good. <laughs> Somebody's got to tell them, yeah. you know, and nobody, and nobody told them, but in art, if you know enough and you know that it's wrong and you're drawing, you can't go, Oh, that looks fine. No, it's like, fuck, what did you just do? That looks like donkey do, you know, fix it. You know, and those are the voices, you know, those are very stringent 
voice now i still draw like a child but that does that's not really what i'm talking about you, you know you can still make something really cool and make it it could be primitive you think you draw like a child uh in a lot in 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 my drawing paintings yeah my painting my cartoon paintings okay i i do a lot of like architectural stuff with hard edges and and photographic lens you know it's all derived from a photograph and it's very very obvious you know uh those paintings uh, are very hard-edged and were my comical paintings like at the rustic goat there's this scene of fourth avenue with this kid on the dad's shoulders and the kid's got his hands covering the dad's eyes and and everything's a little wonky you know it's out of perspective a little bit you know but i do that sort of intentionally it's like what an illustrator does okay and i didn't mean to get you off track you were talking about the importance of the truth yeah yeah the truth and and then so when you apply that to your paintings you apply that to your world and then when you know how to bullshit your way around the corner you know and you hear somebody else trying it out on you you know, it's like, well, number one, that ain't working. And number two, I'm not that stupid. Mm-hmm. I'm not, and I'm not going to say that either. I'm not going to say, well, you think I'm stupid. No, I just like, okay, thank you for showing me to you. Thank you for showing me who you think I am. Or, you know, this is your this is your world perception of me, you know. And, you know, it sounds like I take things personal, which it can happen, you know, if I think the intention is is a cutting remark you know i'm from that sort of uh shame ray you know uh wayne white is a famous artist who did peewee's playhouse and stuff and and he he did this beauty is embarrassing and he has this character called shame ray he's from tennessee or kentucky and 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 i'm from texas um and it's a similar thing that goes on down there where people shame you uh for no good reason like you're an artist you want to be an artist well people will tell you well you you fucking can't do that you know Mm -hmm. and they'll just it's just like they think that they're doing you the biggest favor ever you know you 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 can't be an artist whatever like what the fuck do they know you know they don't know shit they're they're still down in wherever picking their nose or whatever and wayne wayne white is 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 making these amazing 3d letter paintings selling for 20 30 you know so who, who who lost that race you know um he stuck to his guns and i did too when i was a child i i was not encouraged i was not told not to draw but i was not really encouraged and i had to scrap my shit together and that's that's my extra gear you know and i've always but but that stress came at a cost you know about three or four years ago i just totally like when trump got elected i just flatlined i just i couldn't work i was you know, losing my shop, I, you know, I, I, I worked really hard on these projects, uh, which I won't go into now, but so it took me a couple of years. I got my hip done a couple of years ago. I stopped drinking. I lost about 40 pounds. Uh, you know, I sleep good at night again. Uh, I'm physical. I, you know, it, it's just, it's amazing. You know, I did a lot of like theater work, stage hand work and you know, you're used to having a screw gun in your hand and running up a six foot ladder without really hold, even holding on to anything. Mm-hmm. You just like scoot up it, scoot down, whatever, hanging off a pipe or whatever, you know, and, and before my operation, you know, I could barely get up out of the car, you know, it was horrible. And, uh, you know, I used to race bicycles 40 years ago, you know, I, 
you know, I, I rode across the country on a tandem, you know, for God's sakes. And to be debilitated like that is very depressing. So, so I have, I have a question here that gets to something you just mentioned. And I recently listened to your interview on Alaska public media's show state of art. And Mm -hmm. in that Mm -hmm. interview, you briefly mentioned your relatively recent sobriety. Is it okay if we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure, sure. And this was alcohol, right? Yeah, I still smoke weed. Okay. And what was your drink of choice? Whiskey, beer. What kind of drinker were you? Um, for the most part, I keep I keep my shit together, but but basically, I would I would have. Uh, my my kind of my tab my limit would be like four shooters and two beers and between the hours of probably five and eight and uh and then i'd go off course uh, if there was an event or something i'm usually the first to be there and the last to leave mm-hmm. and a lot of people can but that that that's some years ago you know uh towards the end before my operation it was full-on uh pain uh self-medicating and and really feeling sorry for myself mm-hmm. <laughs> and depressed and uh just not having really any interest and just not knowing really what how it's going to shake out you know so that's why you quit because of the operation uh that was part of it um you know uh i had a, a first hip operation uh three years before that and uh, I stopped drinking for a month or so, and I took it pretty seriously. But then I took it pretty casually, starting back in on it. And and at first it was you know moderate, and then I don't think I was a really super heavy drinker. I w- would probably drink too much at times. But when my when I was on my second hip thing, I was on the oxycotton. That nine days or whatever I was on, I mean, I recovered like in six days. It was amazing after the first one was three weeks or something, but this, this went really fast and it was enough of a break to change my habits. And I was really determined this time because I had like this arrhythmic heart and just, you know, just bullshit that was, was just not me, high blood pressure and stuff. So dropping the weight and and not drinking, I just gave my brain back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I was concerned also for my kids, you know, uh, they're young adults and I see them partying and following in my footsteps, you know? And, uh, so since, since then my daughter has stopped drinking and my son has cut back, uh, quite a bit. And so, um, was that a conversation that you had with them that, that made them cut back? Uh, I never d- have a direct conversation in that respect of, of like you should do what i just did mm-hmm. i would i would applaud i would tell them some of the benefits and they could just see my physical person and be inspired by that but i would never shame them in in into their activities just because i've i've been sober for a couple of years you know this is my first time in my adult life i'm 60 i'm 60 years old i don't feel 60 but uh you know it's like you can't get away with being a dumbass, you know, when you're this old, you know, you really owe it to yourself and to the ones that love you to, to be the best version of yourself. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a sticker or something, but it, it really is, you know, if, if you really question what we're doing here and you really question, like, 
if there's an afterlife or whatever, you know, to me, don't seek those answers. Those answers are dumb. You know, go forward with the idea it does matter, which it does, right? Because you know, when things get go south, you know, all of this uh, sort of uh, domino effect starts happening. And conversely, when you have a life that is larger than yourself and you care for other people and you and you walk uh, through a store without hiding from someone, you know, I mean, there's certain people that I'd rather not maybe have a conversation with, but I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to totally dodge them. You yeah. Know? Um, it is hard to have, you know, 50 years in this town without going, oh, brother, here's 20 minutes. I'm not getting back. <laughs> you know, so uh, there's that. And of course, you know, I'm I I love my fans. Uh, I have this super hot demographic of ladies between the ages of 65 and 85, you know, and and uh no i'm just kidding no, i'm not kidding at all but uh no i i love my fans i love i love when somebody comes up and they they actually know what i've been doing and uh you know because some of these kids that you know they they weren't born when i started doing this and i'm not even like like a steve gordon or a, i don't know who the hell but you know um some of these folks have, have really made money <laughs> have you always thought that paying attention to, you know, the afterlife or being spiritual or having questions relating to that is stupid? Or is this kind of a new thing? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, that's not what I meant by that. Okay. I mean, you know, uh, the, the sometimes people ask questions that are going to be impossible to answer, you know, and, and it's like, if you're on the fence about whether there's a, a, a another life ahead or you get another shot at it, mm -hmm. like, like, you know, you put in some more coins in the video machine or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's not, the, I don't think that's the way it works, you know, but so you have to make, even though you may be reborn or whatever, but what I'm, what I'm talking about is, is, uh, you know, it's important to think about these things, but, but it's more important to take action. Mm -hmm. So what actions are you going to take? What, what sort of habits in your own life? How are you going to be perceived by others? You know, and the fundamentals in what, what I do tell my children and what I tell other people that are maybe thinking about going into the film industry, for example, which I don't recommend, but you know, it's show up on time, number one. And that really, really is important. That first 15 minutes, is not yours you know i used to think this working at the bike shop um but you know that was a different time different world but it is so important but it means that you're taking the other person seriously you know and and sometimes it doesn't matter that you be specifically on time it's like it's you know you have to gauge everything because if you just focus on that one thing then other things going to be lost but mm -hmm. but but being on time doing you know saying what you're going to do you know like i can do this you know instead of like faking it and oh yeah sure i know what you mean and then not know what you mean and then go and fuck something up put diesel in the truck <laughs> and it's a gas or whatever yeah or uh, vice versa you know that kind of shit 
that's that's dumbass like you should have talked about it stuff you know you should have just looked stupid for a second and that's the, another problem it's like when i go into a store i go hey you know can you find such that well uh, i don't know you know we don't really do that you know and they're, so they're so much more concerned about getting in trouble themselves mm -hmm. over a decision they've made rather than actually help me so they they would totally ask me to fuck off and, and and instead of getting in trouble and so the management system in these in these places are are really toxic you know and this 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 happens all over town and, and but i see it you know and conversely i also see the super positive vibe places those folks who are really uh have strong intentions to be a humanistic uh, experience you know and that is a commodity these days that is also being nice is a commodity <clears throat> people really appreciate it so when you're on the phone with someone and you are really you're you're calling them by the name or you're you're, you're acknowledging them and you, you your problems are your problems and and you know you're not putting it on them and stuff oh my god they'll just fucking roll over for you you know and and so kill them with kindness you know well i like what you said about people are afraid to look stupid because mm -hmm. one thing that I, I think that maybe it comes from a sense of uh, efficiency for me. So if I'm going to a grocery store, if I'm going to an outlet store and I know exactly what I want, I'm not going to wander around and look for that thing. I'm going to look for an employee first and ask where it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I guess in that way, I'm right there with you with uh, looking stupid. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, now, now here's the other side. Of, I'm, I'm not being the devil's advocate here, but going into Home Depot, for example, um, I would probably not. I have a little joke about uh, about asking where something is because whenever uh, somebody walks up to me and asks me if they can help me and stuff. I'm really skeptical and I go, well, I'm looking for the, and then he says, well, I think that's over in plumbing and plumbing is like, uh, you know, halfway down the world from where I was or whatever. So I go down there. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, it's not there and it's not like they're wrong all the time, but it's kind of like, again, you have a hundred thousand items, you know, also in the grocery store, you know, they move that shit around all the time. I know where everything is. I know how everything's categorized. It's my, my sort of, OCD or whatever, my cataloging of everything, you know, and, and so I don't trust people to tell me the, tr the, the truth, you know, and so, uh, but, but with directions, if I don't have a map, if I don't specifically know, absolutely ask, I would never too proud to, to ask for help. You know, I just want to make sure that I've, I've uh, fulfilled my initial obligations, right, mm -hmm. of, of, of figuring it out for myself. But again, it's, it's just my attitude. And, I'm, you know, I've got this barrier around, I'm an island, you know, and, and I don't want people coming into my zone and, and, and not, to, not being able to help me, you know, uh, but they, they won't, they, they won't admit to it, you know, uh, and it's like, well, what are you going to do with that? And it's like, I don't want to get into it right now. Cause like I use all this stuff at Home Depot for things that it's not meant for, you know, you make fluted columns out of pipe insulators, you know, you make, uh, and sono tubes, you know, and, and put schmutz on it. And there you go. You've got a cement column, fluted column. You know, there's all these things that, that you can 
that you can utilize and you know you just don't want to have that conversation with the, with the guy do you think it's difficult for you to trust people in general oh yeah def- definitely I, I don't trust people why is that well just i i'm not gonna i guess subject them to uh uh, to I don't know, some, it, it's usually the the when when I really think that uh, there's other reasons, you know, and there usually is, and so so people like uh, I've had this happen with like political campaigns, you know, somebody. Uh, who's working on the campaign sort of knows me and will basically kind of take a little bit of advantage of my generosity. Like I'll give them a bunch of stuff for the thing and then they'll come back. They'll want more. They'll kind of, they'll kind of want more without really asking that like they did the first time. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's, it's kind of, it hurts a little bit because, um, you know, I kind of like want to be their friend, you know, but I'm like either too old or too creepy or, or something doesn't fit, you know, it's like, then they don't trust me. It's like, well, what do you want? You want to, you know, do you want to smash me? You know, do you want to, it's like, no, it's like, I'm just, I want to have a, a, a meaningful, like if somebody's really smart and they, you know, they seem smart, I can learn something. You know, I want to, I want to kind of be hanging with those guys. Mm-hmm. And I really, to me, I'm very selective about who I hang out with because I don't want really any side swipes. I don't want any uh, drama conflicts uh, necessarily, uh, you know, intellectual uh, processes can be conflicts, but um, like my band, you know, it's, it's kind of a pickup. My son's in the, in the band. But we, we have been flowing through musicians and, and we've been slowly sculpting this thing. It's beautiful. Uh, we, we, you know, it's not, it, it's like we all kind of want similar things. We don't want to like, you know, break this scene open and, and, you know, go on tour in the States or anything. It's just like the process of making and creating music and all that kind of stuff. We, you know, sort of like we found sort of this common mm-hmm. area that, that we, that we can work within. And it really is for ourselves, you know, I mean, I wouldn't mind playing out, but it is, it is much more for, for our own experiences. Do you feel like your son has to talk you into certain things, trusting certain people, or is he guarded like you are? Um, I, I think, I don't know. I think he has, you know, has a little anxiety about social situations and stuff. Um, but he's very, uh, very gregarious and he, he a bartender at the roadhouse. I don't, do you know, do you know my son? I don't think so. No. Yeah. Shane is, has been a bartender at the roadhouse for, I think a year, something like that. And this is the Spinard roadhouse, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And so he, I, I have all these parents basically, uh, of like, of my peers, parents that that they have kids that went to school with Shane in elementary school she got optional or whatever and you know so so I get these uh these these reports it's like we were in the roadhouse the other day and we talked to your son Shane and he's such a fine gentleman and all these really accolades 
and I couldn't be prouder. You know, I mean, I, I kind of feel like I was a bit of a hard ass with him when he was growing up. But I hated those little spoiled little fuckers who who would just like walk all over their moms or whatever it was. You know, it's like, fuck, that ain't going down. I'm too old school for that, you know. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's a good question, uh, Cody. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, we see each other uh, every week at practice and, and occasionally some more. Um, we have a pretty good line of conversations, but then there's a, there, he definitely has his own life that he doesn't tell me about and I don't ask him about, you know, so, um, there is, there is a boundary. I think a good boundary there. He wants to, my daughter's in Texas where my sisters live and, you know, she wants to make a life for her own, you know, and, and I, I see that I wanted that too, when I was 20 or whatever, you know, but, uh, and that was that was a bold kind of move for me because it was just me and my dad and my dad went back to texas when i was 18 and i just made the decision right then that i was going to stay up here mm -hmm. in alaska yeah yeah and i had no family you know it was just me and short time after that i'm i uh, met marie my wife of today we've been together about 40 years and uh yeah what was that like staying back in alaska while your dad you know, went back to, where was it? Texas. Texas. It, it, it was not a, a scene that I was interested in. I, I gave up a lot of, a lot of money going down there every, every once in a while, because nobody would ever come up here. But, uh, you know, I, I tried to sort of uh, keep the, the connection or relationship alive, you know, as, as best I could afford. Um, but, I felt very liberated because I was kind of raising my dad when I was going through high school. He, he suffered from cataracts and, and also suffered from uh, drinking too much whiskey and uh, pretty much debilitated, you know, really is basically blind most, some of the time. And, uh, but yeah, he was a mess. And somehow he, he managed to live another fucking 20 years or something. I couldn't believe it, but, uh, uh, but I, I, it was a weight off my shoulders because I was a typical child of an alcoholic, you know, they just, they just don't have it together. They're borrowing money from you mm -hmm. and, and, uh, just bullshit, you know, and I, I wasn't much better. I mean, right after like that whole sort of dark sort of teens of, of dealing with my dad, I started working at the cauldron and the cauldron was this hotsy totsy place in 19. 79, 80, 82 was probably the extent of its heyday. They would have people out the door, soup and sandwich. They made their own bread and stuff. And uh, Paul Colbert was the owner, part owner. And he was really into metaphysics. And so he taught me about, um, he taught me about metaphysics and about meditation. And, uh, and I kind of stuck with it on some level ever since. And, you know, I was uh, strict, uh, I, stopped eating meat um, I eat eggs and dairy and stuff but I'm still a vegetarian and uh, I feel really you know I think that was a really good decision um, I'm I'm not a fancy vegetarian you know but I I just I feel like uh, you know we can eat on a lot less you know we can eat we can survive on, on a lot less from what we what we consume so um, I just, I'm getting into it. I, I've got the garden out front. It's it's really cool. You know, I, I'm horrible growing vegetables. You know, I love to cook and everything, but yeah, it's uh, um, 
it's kind of good going back. You said that you weren't a fancy vegetarian. What is what does that mean? What are you making? Uh, a lot of uh, <clears throat> complete uh, complete proteins like uh, beans and rice. Um, I'm really heavy into soups and curries, uh, Thai food, Indian food, uh, big time uh, in, into that. Uh, Kitchery is one of my favorite kind of, uh, it's a great uh, hangover remedy. Uh, it's just mung beans and rice with, with uh, vegetables, but it's got a mess of ginger and, and ginger and garlic and, and, and spice to it. Um, I think those are really <clears throat> great foods to have because they, they are, they're, they give you energy, um, you know, it's light on your feet. And man, if you know anything about the meat industry, <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. I just, you know, I can't eat uh, farm shrimp, you know, can you eat farm shrimp? Can you eat tilapia? No, I cannot. That is my, <laughs> that's my Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> will you eat farm shrimp? Will you eat tilapia? No, I will not. They have been eating poop all day and I will not eat that. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, that's weird. You know, you know, this guy told it perfectly. We, we have all this beautiful black wing cod up here and we sell it to Japan. And then, and then we, we give our own people tilapia fish sticks you know in return and in return we we ship off all this beautiful wild red salmon and then in return we get this atlantic pink puke th that they call fish you know and it's like why would you trade out and be, you know why because it tastes like something it tastes it has taste to it people don't like wild salmon because it has a taste and that should tell you about idiocracy america you know, it's like people are just into the mac and cheese. You know, my kids wouldn't eat anything other than orange, you know, growing up, you know, it's like cheddar cheese, mac and cheese, <laughs> uh, eggs, <laughs> white tortillas, you know, <laughs> no greens, no reds, no, nothing, you know, uh, 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 yeah, I don't know. I, I really was into restaurants. I was really into this whole idea of entertaining and, and I love the art of, of you know, the bartending. I used to be a bartender. And I tell you, a lot of the wind came out of my sails when I, when I worked on that Willowa project. I was not the architect. I was not like any, any real player, even though I was a cons I, I consulted uh, for the time of their development. And this is Willowa Social downtown, yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I also designed the inside of Flat Top Pizza and did the mural for Humpies in the back. That's kind of got started with Humpies in 94 mm -hmm. and did a bunch of stuff for them that you can see still and continued to do the, uh, continued to do the, uh, the Flat Top. And then Willowa was going to be my, like, masterpiece, but I was working against too many conservative minds that basically wanted to open up a really big humpies you know and that's kind of what they did and uh it kind of kicked them in the ass kind of almost sunk humpies they went into bankruptcy it was horrible and and you know a lot of people didn't get paid and i think they finally squared that away but it was just such a monumental task you know it was an amazing uh, idea and still, I think it's still finding its identity and stuff, but I, I still get sick to my stomach every time I walk in that place because of all of the turmoil and fighting against, you know, 
just the way they treated people just you know it's just uh you know people have to be treated like human beings you know i mean it, it's it's like this real kind of fear brigade you know the the boss down you know it's like this this uh, it's just not a good environment because after studying what these cool restaurants do like having staff meals even if it's like cheap ingredients or whatever everybody sits down and are human for a few minutes you know and 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 and, and connect you know even in, in when they were testing out the the menus they would make one thing right they would make one shrimp platter one sandwich and there were like 27 30 people you know 30 people at this at this menu tasting and you were supposed to taste this so like say what if you were number 25 and you came upon the sandwich you know i mean it's just a mess right and you, you know it's like you're supposed to eat after like a couple of dozen people and feel okay about it you know instead of sitting down with smaller groups really getting the feedback with the dishes they were trying to you know just do it do it on the fly and that's that's you know that's the world we live in today you know it's so pragmatic so uh, in a rush to make money you know so perfect world scenario you have as much money as you need unlimited amount of money what type of restaurant slash venue would you create right well <clears throat> there's a, a book called the uh, bar tartine and and it's a closed restaurant so i have to full disclosure and it was beyond a slow food movement basically what they would do is buy low and sell high they would buy when the beets were were in season they would go buy in the calendar year so they buy a bunch of beets and they would process these beets and make beet powder dried beets beet chips and store them in their larder and if you could say multiply that by a thousand different things that's what they were doing and so they have all of these powders and all of these mixes that they that they add to their soups and their dishes that created this amazing uh you know flavor profile without really going with this scottish venison or some exotic rare in ingredient that had to be air freighted or whatever so it would be local it would be slow you know for me i would i would just no apologies make it a vegetarian restaurant and i know everybody would be rolling their eyes huge but guess what this has worked in other places you know there was a french guy and i actually walked past this place when i was in paris and the risotto was a fucking hundred dollars i mean there's no shit dinner here is like a 500 dollar bill pretty sure and uh the guy just no meat you know and he went totally vegetarian and now he's doing fish now but but it totally shocked everybody but he was amazingly successful because he 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 was so creative in, in his approach so you know paris paris is a completely different story because it has the population to sustain something like that absolutely does it ever frustrate you that anchorage might not have the population to sustain new progressive ideas well i mean you i when i got here there were seventy five thousand people so um i've looked around and where did all these people come from <laughs> yeah so i i kind of feel like uh, we are reaching uh, some kind of uh, critical mass, you know, 
Um, I get your question. Or I get I get what you're saying. And yes, I'm very I'm frustrated not just about that, but but about you know even though I surround myself with 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 good intended people, you, you know there there's the rest of them and 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 some of the the things I see on these uh, feeds, you know, when it comes to uh, an event on K on Channel 11 or something, and, and you know the homeless population and, and the horrible things they say about about individuals, you know, I mean that's the world sort of like we're entertaining right now and so that part is really really frustrating and i do think like i have an idea for a cargo bike you know delivery company in midtown and i i want to pursue this i don't have a lot of capital but i'm i am going to pursue it and the the, the, the virus has got me going you know because i i'm working on all of these i'm working on a bicycle rv in in theory in a drawing you know, uh, I've worked on restaurants like that. You know, I, I add it all up. I, I put all the pieces together and and it, it just it's it's a it's like a place that has incredible intrinsic values. You know, it, you know, the, it's not necessarily about the money. I think the money always follows the good intended idea. You know, if you're bringing forward value, bringing forward like this is your best version of, of the food, and of service and everything everybody's going to recognize that, you know, and it's not like some secret uh, ingredient or a twist. It's just that that old fashioned love, connect, you know, kind of stuff. And, 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 and uh, people know that it works because they're still doing it, you know. Mm. And uh, I, I think that we, I have a song about shortcuts, you know, I think that we want to shortcut a lot of stuff. People call themselves photographers when they just own a camera right and they think they have a good eye which they may but you know it's kind of like calling yourself a poet or calling yourself a philosopher you know it's a term better used by someone else describing you and you know you you, you, you got to put in the work you got to do the work yeah. you have to put in the work you have to fail you have to look stupid you know and and it's not like you know, I'm going to go out really look stupid, you know, and be a spectacle. But, you know, it's like the innocence of thinking that you can succeed when it's a bridge too far, you know, and art is constantly like that. I'm only now getting to a place where I'm like, fucking, this is cool. I, I can't wait to get back starting on this, on this, uh, you know, painting because I'm, I'm like really, truly into it. It's working out the way I want it. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I've, I've messed up so many other pieces. Or, you know, incompleted, you know, so, so many other things. So, and that there's that show, 60,000 hours, you know, they say 10,000 hours and you're, you kind of can know it. Well, there's a 60,000 hour, I guess it's a Japanese thing, but uh, that's more like 30 years, 40 years. And this one guy was just a knife sharpener. And that's all he did, you know. And I learned how to sharpen a knife from this guy. And he, I, I can sharpen knives now. And there's a little something to it, but it's great to have sharp cooking knives. Mm -hmm. But th think of like what it takes to go on a ramp, you know, 30 years, 40 years of this one specific thing. Art's way different than that in the sense that, you know, the scope of work is different. You're painting objects, you're, you're designing, you know, you're designing things or, uh, you know, I have a lot of different ways I work, you know, my cartoon stuff 
or my landscape or my figurative work, you know, uh, you know, life drawing kind of stuff. Um, but again, you're implementing more or less the same, you know, this, the, the same thing. You're paying attention, and we, especially when you're drawing from life, when you're in a in an outdoor painting situation, you really are still. You have to stay. Your head has to stay still, literally, in order to do the work. Because what you're doing is you're locking your body in one position and flicking your eyes back and forth between the object and your painting. And the more you flick it back and forth, the more you can see how wonky something is and how you can change it and how you sort of like determine whether or not you're on the right track because everything's you know has all these relationships that you have to look at how many hours do you think you've put into your art well i mean i started when i was like in third grade you know and i fumbled really hardcore for you know the first 20 years and when i was in my early 20s i really started taking well in my in my teens i airbrushed t-shirts and in my early 20s i started understanding all the rock uh late album art you know all of the chrome letters and airbrush uh, techniques called hyper realism and i was really into there's some famous japanese airbrush artists who who were into this super hyper hyper realistic uh, imagery and so i was in that you know cutting out friskets and, and delicately applying my inks and such and uh you know and then i started doing the theater stuff and so so even though i was working a lot i wasn't generating a lot of work i was messing up a lot and i was throwing a lot of shit away mm -hmm. where i wasn't very satisfied with, with with stuff it would take me like six months to do something whereas you know the same painting might take me three three weeks or something uh, you know, my average on a painting that has a lot of features and details is usually two or three weeks. And that's now. And that's now. Okay. Yeah. And and that's a lot of layers. That's like a bunch of paintings on top of each other that create one painting. You know, you're sort of like going back over it and over it, reinstating, reinstating, and and it's a very slow kind of process. But to me, that's what makes something look like something, mm -hmm. something permanent. You know. Uh, a painting, when you see a painting, you go to Credit Union 1 in Mountain View, and it is behind plastic, but it is a six foot by six foot painting of the Mountain View car wash, and a guy riding a bike with no hands, and a guy ride, riding his bike pulling a kayak behind it, and some other crazy shit, and, and that took me about a month, that was working it really hard. But I figured I did as much work in the last 10 years as I have probably in my whole life. What motivated you to start drawing the streets and businesses on Spinard? Um, at first, it was out of um, maybe a copy of the Whale Fat Follies, how I saw, how I saw White Keys create Spinard as a brand. Mr. White Keys. Yeah. Yeah, Mr. White Geese. And so he, I saw his show as branding Spinard, and that what got me going as a young man. I just, I, I got a camera when I was in my early 20s, and I started taking pictures of Chilkoots and, and these, sh sh you know, uh, shabby looking places and, uh, and then Hog Brothers and, and stuff. So I was just slowly kind of attracted to this, uh, you know, the Ashcan artists like Ed Hopper, Edward Hopper was one of my 
uh, first loves, you know, he, you know, it's like warts and all. And that's getting back to the truth of things, you know, mm -hmm. even though I like to romanticize in a way parts of Spinard, uh, something that looks shitty and making it look beautiful uh, without lying about it, you know, um, and, and, and trying to see the beauty in things. Right. And uh, and and people take kind of things for granted. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I I, I, I think that. Uh, that's what got me started and then i started kind of exploiting it like downtown the club paris you know probably painted that two or three times mm -hmm. i've painted the lagoon maybe five times from different places westchester lagoon right westchester lagoon and um different things i go back to not just because i think it would sell but sometimes it you know sometimes i feel really kind of like desperate or something so here goes the fourth Avenue painting again, you know, or here it comes, you know, uh, I try to look at it and I've done it differently, you know? Um, so I don't know what I'm complaining about it. It's just like a run out of, sh I run out of stuff to do. And that's is what led me to the scootering because I, I was able to, um, you know, go fast anywhere I wanted. Mm -hmm. and, and I wasn't like on a bike bike when I was on my bike, I, I have this, habit of like looking at the road you know i'm looking at every rock every pebble you know i'm not looking up and looking around with the scooter you're an upright position you're like they put tugging on the tugging on the throttle a little bit and then you can see everything you know and go as slow as you want mm -hmm. uh so now i'm just my mind starts categorizing patterns i start thinking of repetitive repetitive things that i see and i make note of it it's like there it is again there it is again and then so slowly i'm building not only my my navigational map my like if i'm somewhere i know exactly you know how to get out of that mess or whatever i'm still getting a little lost sometimes because the subdivisions are just squirrely you know they they go all over there's cul-de-sacs you know like i don't know if we talked about the cul-de-sac thing we didn't know <laughs> well we have a lot of them you know yeah and i have i have a saying when you fix one thing you break another and so uh, you know great intentions everything you, you usually end up fucking something else up so do you have something against cul-de-sacs yeah i do what is it it says it says go away it says end of the road please do not come and and so do not drive through my neighborhood is what it says to me and this is how we fix it okay i get it you know we, i i've got a three street my i live on woodland park it's a three street for the neighborhood a lot of you know used to be worse but now now it's kind of mellowed out but you know yeah guys go speeding down my street i don't really care for it that much but um it is a uh, it's just my opinion you know i'm sure there are things that have been written about it like the feng shui of it mm -hmm. is is probably horrible you know i'm just gonna guess it just like without even looking at the book on this i'm just gonna say probably horrible and 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 it's for those reasons because when you turn that corner is this a street or is this a little tit you know and, and it's only to put more houses in a certain area too so it, it it jams it up from the view of the sky you know you can see how close these roof lines are together so it is it is kind of an efficiency of sorts you know you know what's interesting about cul-de-sacs that i never thought of until my wife and i 
were living in Reno for college and we showed up to her friend's house and they lived in a cul-de-sac and we just parked in the middle of the cul-de-sac because that's, uh-huh. you know, that's right. how we have always been familiar with cul-de-sacs is you just park in the middle of them here in Alaska. Yep. And so we parked in the middle of it, went into her friend's house. And first thing they said is, why did you just park in the middle of our cul-de-sac? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like an Alaska thing. Yeah. Right? And, and, and we didn't even think twice about it. So, you know, we, I guess they like their cul-de-sacs to be clean. You know, they don't yeah. like anything in the middle. So we went outside and, and moved her car to the curb. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, uh, you know, I heard of these places where you can't have a pickup truck out front or something. It's like, what the fuck? You know, okay. Uh, I see Pickups are ugly. You know, it's like, there's some like aesthetical thing of like, ah, you know, it's the last thing I want to see. You know, it's like, is this your problem? You know, is this, is this what's like stopping you from living? You know? Oh shit. It's hilarious. Uh, yeah, my, my buddy, um, I went on a walk with him the other day and he was telling me about how him and his girlfriend are renovating their house. So they just rented a, a dumpster. And so this person was delivering the dumpster. And as he was like lining up to back up the dumpster, <laughs> <laughs> you already know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah, I do. <laughs> He, he kind of had to stop in the neighbor's yard and the neighbor just lost it, you know, oh, like, and shit. I guess the, the dumpster was only there. Like there was a couple wheels on the guy's grass oh, and the guy lost his mind. Oh, he came God. out, yeah. took pictures of it, you know, yeah. took pictures of the car and uh-huh. was just kind of flipping out. And, uh, and the car was only there for a couple minutes and then, you know, it was moved into my friend's driveway and you know, there's the trash can. <laughs> I thought you were going to say somebody ran up and put some trash in it. Oh, no. <laughs> like, like, be, oh, there we go. Fresh one. All right. Thanks. You know? Well, that is kind but, of weird, though, isn't it? That that. Yeah. Um, so whenever I'm walking around and say it's trash day, right? And I yeah. see somebody's trash can is out front of their house or what? I'm downtown. And so if I have a piece of trash in my pocket or if I finish a drink or whatever, I'll just open a random trash can and throw it away. And whenever I'm with a friend or, I mean, it happens pretty often. They're like, you can't do that. I'm like, it's trash. You know, why, why wouldn't I be able to do that? But at the same time, I guess that trash can is that person's property. And it's kind of like that idea of ownership, right? It's like, get out of my space. Right. Right. Well, this is property. So, you know, the getting back to the Black Lives Movement thing, you know, it's like you can, you know, kill people and maim them and everything else. But, man, steal a fucking candy bar from Walmart, fucking everybody loses their mind. You know, I I don't quite get the looting. You know, I I don't think it's really helpful uh, for obvious reasons. You know, it's kind of a short term kind of kind of fuck you. Uh, but but this whole idea of property, this woman, a few weeks back, there was this big, beautiful black woman talking about, I don't give a fuck about the football hall of fame. You can, you know, it's like, this is, this has got to stop. You know, it's like, you guys are losing your mind over property, but you let the cops do all this shit to us. Fuck you. And you're talking about systemic racism and yes, police brutality. Yes. And, okay. and, and so because of, because of, you know, this property issue and, and, and then it's like, you know, a, a thing that dawned on me is like, you know, 
none of this is ours. I mean, we don't own any of this. And so if you don't own property, if you can't get a loan for a house because the federal government has been race, you know, racially profiling you, then, you know, you don't know what that's like. You don't know the feeling of like, this is mine. I'm going to take care of it and all this kind of stuff. You know, it, it's like you're always kind of on the losing end of that stick. And, you know, it, it is it is uh, hard for people like this guy with the grass. This is how tightly wound we are. And I like to call it neurosis. Mm -hmm. You know, I really do, because it is it, I think it is a kind of a mental illness, kind of like hoarding money is kind of like a mental illness that we allow to happen. Um, you know, there's the context that we all have to look at. You know, what what is the history between uh, your friend and, and this guy? Um, is this guy strictly upset just because it's his grass? And, uh, you know, has this happened before or something along those lines? Mm -hmm. You know, so that context is also important to, to, to look at. Now, I, you know, this guy does sound like a Karen and, <laughs> you know, should be should be dealt with as such. Um, I, I really th I'm really happy about this because, you know, as a, like a, a, a catering bartender for years, catering all these lawyer offices and these these private parties and stuff, you go into these rich people's homes and you think, oh, man, they're living the life. Literally one time it was several million dollar home in in this rosewood sort of cabineted uh, kitchen. Uh, there was nothing but Taco Bell bags, and there was absolutely no food in any of those cupboards. It was just all empty cupboards, just, you know, and then the, the you know, the, the garage is just kind of littered, strewn with, you know, last year's shit they bought, and they just kind of, you know, <clears throat> they don't have anything together, you mm -hmm. know. It, it's like they have the same kind of problems as people without money do, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and money doesn't fix it. I guess it's kind of what I'm trying to say here. But the the attitude that they have, you're the servant, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, you're theirs, you know, and that sucks. You know, What's always interesting to me about ownership and property and money is that you never can own anything. Nothing is ever permanent, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you are extremely wealthy and you set up a trust and that money can go on into kind of perpetuity exactly say say me and my wife have a million dollars and we both die and that million dollar and we don't have any spouse or we don't have any kids that money is just going to go to the bank or it's going to go so you know all of that that we worked mm -hmm. for our entire life mm -hmm. is just gone and so right. this weird sense of entitlement that comes with money and ownership mm -hmm. and property is just a facade. Yeah. Well, it's the neurosis that the hoarding, the hoarding component of this is, is the uh, attachment, right? It's the complete attachment to this money, to this object. It's mine, you know, and, and, and to define that is to define the immature mind, the arrested development person, you know, I mean, I worked hard for that. That was my money. I saved up. Da da da. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm feeling uh, violated, and I've had things stolen from me. And by God, I was hot, hot, hot about it. And it wasn't 
<clears throat> it was in fact the object my bike that was was kind of irreplaceable um it also was the violation it was the intrusion it was the uh side swipe for me and 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 people i think are traumatized in this way and were you talking about an accident uh i'm talking about when my bike was stolen okay and i'm talking about the guy with the grass too so the guy with the grass he's kind of traumatized right he he uh he has this kind of built up thing now maybe like i said maybe there's history and which caused maybe more of a thing i don't know but but that's that could be a potential thing but this guy just to say he's upset about the grass being being destroyed and he wants compensence and he doesn't want the guy just shooting off and then he's stuck with bad grass uh but you know there's a lot more going on there to unpack you know this guy he you know he, he he's really quick to feel violated he's defensive you know these things add up to a scared child you know in a way mm -hmm. and they're not dealing with it like he doesn't care about your relationship or his relationship with his neighbor because he's ready to double down right now he's not fostering a bridge he's tearing that fucking bridge apart mm -hmm. by taking pictures and like he doesn't trust him that, that he's going to be compensated or you know this will go unnoticed or undone you know and this is i think what gets people all stirred up they want justice they want that that right now you know and and nobody's going to fucking take advantage of them so what's happening in the rest of his life that made him kind of get there is it the military is it the you know is it catholic school is it you know it, is it these these values that were in you know ingrained in him that keep him where he's at and and like you say you can't take it with you when you go the same thing with transient nature of life itself the here and now you know it is constantly in flux and the more we ride with that fluxation the more we're in rhythm with it and the less likely we're going to be surprised from it mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah yeah it does and and you know, I'm I'm looking at my notes here, and I have this this question written down written down about nostalgia. And you had yeah. mentioned nostalgia early on in our conversation, and I didn't mean to switch gears on you here, but I wanted yeah. to kind of get this question in before I yeah. forgot. Yeah. So, are you ever nostalgic for past versions of Anchorage or past versions of Spinard? Um, yes, but it also includes the past humanity you know, the past innocence and, uh, back before like a thousand heartbreaks ago, uh, I would, I would just be immediately in love with whatever I would trust maybe more, a little more and, and say, well, sure, let's do that. You know, and, uh, and, and just that openness and the simplicity of, 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 of not being, you know, under the bills or, or or like you know child rearing you know 20 years of child rearing uh, you know you're always kind of coming in second for the most part with that um but uh yeah uh nostalgia um it, it it is more you know before you said the thing that you regretted you know it's it's like in the moments of arguments and stuff i've, I've been very careful not to not to uh you know name call to to the point i've certainly been uh, uh apologetic for for conversations i've had with my spouse and stuff you know getting too uh you know hot about stuff 
Um, but I never got over that over that barrier of like you know something saying something really contemptuous, and, and where where you draw that new line, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where you go really far, and even though there might be forgiveness, it will never ever be the same. You already said it. Right. Yeah, it's said. And it's so out you there. Can't, exactly. And that's what I feel about nostalgia. You know, it, it's uh, before those times before you got real shitty and did this X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so in that way, you know, I've been trying to capture this Alaskan kitsch, but as I research like the, the, the cool map, uh, tablecloth covers and the cool things, they're littered with racist, uh, you know, iconography, uh, Billikens, uh, Eskimos and, you know, igloos and, and, and this kind of stuff. Mm. And so that's not what I want to bring back. That's not, you know, but it's the art. It's the way in which the things were done before computers. It's a line weight of the drawing. It's the, it's the style, you know, and, and that's what I'm kind of nostalgic about is I wanted to bring back Alaska in this kind of like earlier version of it to where people could be reminded of how kind of excited everybody was to be up here. And you came to Alaska in 1969, right? 1971. So I I feel like everyone has their own coming to Alaska story and, (laughs) and they all have the same combination of elements, be it escapism or Mm -hmm. adventure. How did you end up in Alaska? Mm. Well, I just kind of to summarize just real, uh, the first time I'm writing my second comic book a little bit about this, but uh, my dad was a car salesman and we basically, we did okay. We were in apartments in San Antonio and, um, you know, just living, he was raising us three kids and I'm the youngest of three. Um, and, um, we got this ranch and he, 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 it was a bridge too far. Basically the, the rent was pretty high. He thought he was be able to stable horses. It was 360 acres and a swimming pool, all this stuff. And anyway, it didn't work out. He drank too much. He, he didn't make any money. He spent a lot of money. He wasn't selling cars because he was out at the ranch and then we all folded and, and went back to the apartment living and super broke. He still owed people money and he got a job on the slope. And he didn't know anything. He just had a Texas accent. They thought he was a oil guy and bam, got a job, made some money, paid off his debts, his uh, relationship with his second wife, you know, kind of broke up. And my two older sisters, they didn't have any interest in coming. So it was just me and him move on top of Darwin's, uh, uh, and, uh, there's, there was two apartments up there. Darwin's theory, right? Right. It was Ruthie's 49er at the time, and it had no windows in the front. It was strictly for day drinkers. Uh, it smelled like Anchorage. It, it, I can, I have this photographic memory of how, how it looked. I was just, it, it's amazing. And what it, it's a great dive bar now, but <clears throat> it was my first experience my with a babysitter. I was 12. I didn't really need babysitting per se, but she had art supplies. She was from New York City. She genuinely took me in as her own child and just loved me to death. And I, the first, I blossomed, you know, I was drawing everything downtown. I was just 
going nuts. You know, was, I had, uh, I would sell my pieces in front of the log cabin for like a dollar or two. They were kind of shitty, just mountains and stuff, but people felt sorry for me. <laughs> and so I would go down to Orange Julius, which was underneath the uh, spiral Penny's parking garage. And they had pinball machines and all the cool kids would be there. So for the first time in my life, I actually had walking around money. And I was walking around and I was feeling feeling it, you know, it was really great. So that was that was really solidified me as an artist. I'm going to do this. But for the next, you know, five or six or so years, I was subjected to my dad's sort of craziness or whatever. So, you know, I, I, I managed, you know, definitely. But, you know, it was me working, you know, 25, 30 hours a week and going to high school, not really having a social life, not really being able to bring anybody home, you know, and say, hey, well, here's my dad, he's in his underwear on the couch, you know, um, so on, so, so forth. So, What did that craziness, your dad's craziness look like? Well, it wasn't that exciting. He just, you know, um, yeah, uh, basically, uh, when he was up here, he didn't really commit super big crimes. <laughs> you know, it was it was just like he, his sight wasn't very well. He was drinking. He 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 was a maintenance man at Inlet Towers, and I washed windows there and worked at Family Market across the street. Uh, you know, we lived in this little one bedroom apartment. He slept on the couch. He gave me the the bedroom, and I went to West High, and really didn't have any friends. You know, and I would paint my room some. Uh, I just, I, I was just very depressed. And uh, so his craziness was just um, crazy making. He wasn't really being a dad at all. I would have to help him find his contact lens or, you know, he was just always in need of aid and he wasn't really making many good choices for himself. Mm -hmm. And so it was difficult at 15, you know, trying to, trying to fit in and everything and then have this sort of albatross of sorts. And this kind of went on for the next couple of years. We were homeless. We lived in a car lot for a little bit. Uh, you know, he finally hit bottom, you know, and I had to kind of deal with that, you know, just seeing somebody in DTs, man, it's just fucked up. You yeah, know, I bet. Going super hallucinations and it's just not fun at all and that was his and bottom was hallucinations was bottom. and dts yeah yeah he was in the hospital for like a week shortly after that i i had an appendicitis you know from the stress i think basically but yeah that was my last semester of high school and i worked really hard that spring and i had a little extra spending money and i went up to palmer and i never felt so free in my life um me and my buddy went to this bar, drinking age was 19 at the time, and he wanted some modifications done on his drawings for this uh, strip mall in Palmer, and let me camp out in his uh, yard for a couple of weeks, and I just, I mean, I just can't explain how joyful that was, just being out from underneath school, and just having my life in front of me, you know, it was just, wow, you know, and I didn't have to have any like regard to dad or what was going to happen. You know, he moved down to Texas and it was just me. So, yeah, yeah, that's uh, and I'm kind of mulling all of this over for my comic book. I've, I've been doing some really cool drawings about we would go to this ranch 
in Laredo and, and my dad really wanted to be a cowboy. It's, it's kind of what it all adds up to, but you know, it, I'm just so happy that uh, I have a family up here and you know, it's just like Alaska is, is like biosphere three, you know, you got one piano tuner, you got, you know, uh, you got, and, and that's fine. You don't have to fight for position, right? You, you just can be and do what you want. Right. And, and, uh, and you can participate. You don't have to be sidelined, you know, in larger cities. Yeah. There's a lot of momentum and stuff, but the, oftentimes you're very sidelined. And, and it's only for the cool kids and stuff, you know, and, uh, and, and maybe it happens here. I mean, I, I certainly would, would say that to some extent with the artists up here, uh, you know, if you're more of an outsider artist, even though I'm well known, I am sort of an outsider artist. I didn't go to art school. Uh, people who went to art school are really good grant writers, it seems like. Um, you know, they know all that administrative stuff mm -hmm. and I hate, I hate all of that stuff. I just, I don't want to participate in it. You know, I, I did the Rasmussen grant. I got it the very first year, 2005, $3,500 and then went for the fellowship three times. And I know it was just what I wanted. They just didn't see it. And, you know, every time I got rejected, I would ju just get totally shit faced and just totally depressed for weeks, you know, I would just, and I talked to other people too, and they had the same kind of effect, you know, and it's like, wow, this, this is just not worth it. You know, it's like, I'm not uh, mature enough to, to handle the rejection. Do you have any theories about why you didn't get it? Well, the, the comments are pretty smarmy uh, that you get these reviewers that, that review the, uh, the applications, uh, they can say some pretty, uh, sort of cutting things, you know, um, I was really stubborn. I wanted to go to Paris and, and, and study on my own. And they, it just looked like a vacation to them. And, uh, uh I think that was number one. Um, I had this other idea of making a half inch scale model of Northern Lights and Spinard and putting, uh, model cars in, in that taking photographs and then creating paintings based on these photographs that I would include people inside the cars. And that would be the sort of narrative of the painting is all of the drama and all of the activity and personal stories that are going on with each car. And so somebody from Seattle <clears throat> wouldn't know the, the corner of Northern Lights and Spinard is the epicenter of the community and and that it had significance uh they thought it was too much money for such a project and that that uh you know they they, they kind of sort of laughed scoffed at it but i didn't support my argument enough i didn't give them examples of what i was talking about i look now back on it and it's like i probably wouldn't have given them the money either um but you know what i did do and it was happenstance is Eric Croft commissioned me to do the Spinardian painting. And so I did the Spinardian painting. It took three or four years to get up and do it, but I made prints of that. And then within the first two weeks or three weeks of, of doing that, I sold a hundred prints at a hundred bucks. I basically got a Rasmussen grant mm -hmm. via this print that everybody was crazy about. And so I took that money and we planned to go to Europe anyway. But it made it just a lot easier. 
um, to, to do that. Because it was your money. You weren't beholden to anybody. Exactly. I don't, and that's, that, that brings up another really good point. Every time you get m- money from the Rasmussen, they invite you to come on stage and they get to fucking do a self-congratulatory, like, look what we did for these poor saps. And so you get to walk out and then you have to say, oh, the Rasmussen Grant, you know, that's really cool. Those guys are really great. Thank you, you know, and and suck their cock one more time. (laughs) You know, I think that you don't have, you know, I don't think you should have to have an application. You fucking know who I am by now. You know, I've filled out that fucking form three or four times now. And I, you know, hat in hand, fucking bragging. So you want, you want me to brag? beg you want me to brag about what i do and and put me in the best light and then once i get the money then you want me to 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 come out and and uh be a notch in your belt you know and i started seeing that as like you know at first i was very flattered as oh i get to go and and and, you know you've you've seen the academy awards Mm -hmm. what kind of fuck up thing is that you know i mean people self-congratulatory uh all night you know like they're they're saving babies or something, you know, it's like they're, they're coming out with this shit, you know, all the time. And they're, they're thinking, Oh, cinematic, you know, masterpiece or whatever. And, and yeah, it's not, it's not. <laughs> Is it ever frustrating to you when you see who wins those fellowships mm. or who, mm. who are awarded those fellowships and then you have outlasted them by tens of years? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, the, the number one is not only, the, the who, uh, because you're supposed to be um, happy for them. And most of the time I am happy for them. Um, but when you get fellowships and the folks may have shown other places, but when it comes to Alaska, they really haven't had many shows. And uh, the fellowship is for people who are mid-career. That means 10 to 15 years into it. I kind of feel like, well, all the other boxes checked off. They were a person of color. They were a nice looking woman, you know, fit nicely on their postcard. You know, not only the art itself, but the woman or the man behind it is, is like a brand, you know, and they're branding this idea. And, you know, I can't help but think being sort of like a boomer like all the boxes are unchecked for me. I'm a white, sort of a white dude. Yeah. And, you know, he's not educated and, you know, he, he's coming, he's kind of breaking the rules in a way, you know. Um, I, I just feel like no, nobody really cares, you know. And so uh, why should I care that nobody cares about whether or not I get one or whatever? You know, it's like, uh, that doesn't make any sense. I. I think it's just um, feeling sad about it in in the most embarrassing way possible, you know, uh, kind of feeling like, well, who's really delusional here? You know, I mean, yeah, what have you brought to the table, et cetera? You know, it's like because I'm so chip on my shoulder kind of a guy that, you know, I haven't really allowed for things to come my way or something, you know, but I, I don't know, you know, I, I'm definitely determined on staying the course, I guess. I don't like that term, but, but, um, I, I'm not going to be sort of like moved by anyone's opinion, I guess, you know, you know, one way I think 
you could look at it too is that you're doing it without anybody's help. You know, I think that maybe yeah. when you get assistance or you get help monetarily from other people, it feels like you own it a little bit less. And since you've done it yourself, you own every single bit of it. Right, right. And my, of course, my wife too. And that's what a lot of people will point to as well. It's like your wife's a teacher. She's got the health insurance. You know, it's got the, the salary. Da da da. You don't have to worry about anything. But which is which uh, is true on some level. But <clears throat> it's never been the arrangement. You know, I mean, I fucking stress my ass off over everything all the time. So it is. It I made my money the hard way for sure. And a lot of times it is because of my own like limitation of what I think people willing to spend. Like you make an agreement, this size painting, da da da, it's of this, and I say a number, and um, and then I spend like ungodly amounts of time on it, mm -hmm. and then and then basically making minimum wage or making, you know, very not that much money. But I sidestep the uh embarrassing question or the embarrassing oh it's going to be more money or or asking for more in the in the front end you know and if it's somebody that i feel like can handle it more you know i will certainly inter engage a, a, a better number but like if it's a friend of a family like i just i did some portraits for, for a family uh, the kids and you know it's difficult to charge them what I should pay, charge them, you know. Uh, it's not like they're broke, but it, it's more like I'm their uncle, you know. And uh, so that's a difficult situation because when I hand off my little baby that I spent three weeks on, you know, and get $500 for it, you know, I, I go, there's something wrong here. And, you know, and especially getting back to the whole hoarder thing where people, you know, people... Uh, and when I say no, uh, you know, I don't know, no, but, but it, it's like, they're, they're not hurting for money, you know, and uh, it's more important for them to get a deal based on their neuroses, you know, based on their, their, what they get off on, you know, and that's another thing that, that I don't think people understand about people that have money are really, really into that. Not everybody, but man when they can get a deal and they think that their position has has helped that come around like the ever seen red belt uh it's, oh man it's a mammoth dave mammoth movie oh, i don't think uh, so oh god it's tim the tool guy uh plays this uh hollywood director and he he, he brings this this the, the, the main character's wife and into their fold and promises them like all of this money and if they make these kimonos out of this really expensive fabric and the, and the girl goes out gets a shark loan buys this fabric and then like calls him back like two days later whatever and disappeared totally disappeared you know and like they just got fucked you know and she's like now on the hook for this money it's like you know working with hollywood you know it, it, i was laughing my ass off because it's, that's exactly the way they come off mm -hmm. that they're so powerful and they're so rich that they are going to make life great for you and promise all this stuff and then exploit the fuck out of you and where there's you know uh you, you're working 16 hours a day for a flat rate you know again you might as well be working at taco bell 
you know, it's all about the deal. And then, you know, once you start stiffening up and going, this is the price, you know, they're in that position where they have to pay it. They don't have any choice. Mm-hmm. And it's the most difficult time to make the, uh, the deal is in front of the job because when in front of the job, everybody's making promises. You got the promise of making money. You've got the promise of this cool project. You got all these things that are looking great, great, great. You get into the project, all the parameters change, and then you're like stuck, you know, in this Megillah. You've mentioned Hollywood a few times. Do you have any experiences with Hollywood? Oh, yeah. I. Or are you using it as no, like... No, no. Okay. I worked on Into the Wild. I painted the bus for Into the Wild. Okay. And I was the onset scenic. And so I got to travel down to California for for parts of the movie. I I got to go to the 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 um the rap party, you know, did did a little uh well I, I can't really say what I did with Sean Penn. Uh and and <laughs> uh, but we were partying basically. Let's just say that. We were partying uh at this hotel and I saw Hal Holbrook and you know Mill Hirsch who played the thing. He we weren't allowed to really talk to him during the during the performance because he was he was dieting uh, really hardcore and uh, he looked like shit. But um, uh, so that was the big experience. I did work on the whale movie, but it was really a horrible experience in contrast because I was at the uh, armory painting set stuff like all day. And my boss was a real pill and, uh, you know, I survived it. Uh, it was, like I said, a really horrible experience. Yeah. It got me out of it, you know, got me out of the, the film thing and like nothing else came after Ted said something horrible about the old patch, the guy in the movie, he said something horrible. And then uh, all the, all the legislators said, well, we're not going to do any tax credits for you guys anymore. You know, and they took away the tax credits for the movie. So there was only just the super exploitive uh tv shows discovery channel mm-hmm. you know some of these uh that will come up and, and not rent a whole crew um and you got long days and you get flat rates it's not it's not really lucrative i did work i've worked on probably 40 commercials uh some of which were really giant uh super bowl type commercials uh these these some of these projects take a month um i did a international commercial for corona uh, where I built a Trajanera, which is a flat bottom boat they have in Mexico City. And uh, I've made an electric uh, soapbox car that ran on batteries. And, and so working for Bradley Reed for uh, the, the Goose, the AT&T Goose years ago, we were puppeteers for that. Um, I built a shit ton of props for Bradley Reed, for Arco, and for the oil companies where they would have kids usually in the commercial doing some, some stuff. But, um, you know, it was interesting, got me places in Alaska, I would have gone helicoptered, you know, and glaciers and stuff. And so it was paramilitary for sure, and very exciting, very adrenaline uh, uh, oriented, um, pretty exciting that way. Um, but yeah, they're, they're really, the, and, and they, they can be some good production companies too, which treat you fairly, they invite you to dinner, but those days are gone, you know. Uh, of actually inviting you to a meal at their hotel so they can talk about tomorrow or whatever. Um, yeah, it's, it's all kind of been shut down. And, and now, you know, they're not really doing these big uh, commercials anymore. You know, I mean, these things were like a million dollars. You know, uh, they would rent the icebreaker and we'd go out 
you know, the guy who did uh, Nirvana's video, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Sam Bear, he directed this Warren Seal and Miss commercial. And the first thing he did was uh, pop in a new uh, uh, cassette of his uh, uh, video he did for Marilyn Manson. And it was this really gross thing, this guy eating this body and stuff. It was like, everybody was like, oh, that's really cool. You know, and again, it, it's just kind of the, the show. But, uh, it, you know, it's the hierarchy. You got 100 people working on these sets. You know, you don't go up to the director and give him your ideas. You know, and yeah. Stuff. Uh, which sounds obvious, but no, it's, it's for some, it's not, you know, they, they won't, they, they think they're on some kind of guided tour, you know, <laughs> camera, you know, it's like, fuck, get, put the camera down. If it's a closed set. You're supposed to fucking be working. You know, you're not like, Oh, this is interesting. You know, shut up. And, uh, you know, uh, the Korean Santa down in sewer, that was, that was really funny in, 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 in Korea. I guess the Santa theme is there's the main Santa with like the $200 beard. And then there's like the secondary Santas. <laughs> they got the $20 beard in the background, right? So there's Santa helpers. But the, the theory was Santa was getting in his sleigh. The one of the, the, the sled runners fall off and he's, he's, he's crippled on the side of the road. And this, this limousine comes in. He calls somebody on this, on this Korean cell phone and this big stretch limo pulls up and he and santa gets in the limo and so that's the that's the joke or the the tagline for the commercial but working with these guys oh my god it was somebody's nephew who was directing it and he was placing the camera like direct directly in front never getting any three-quarter shots of the side and the front you know mm -hmm. and it's like what we call flat stanley in the in the business you know and he had no skills at all you know and everybody was fucking having to listen to him and you know you know it's like these little shit shows uh but these shit shows do pay like when you're an international company they walk around basically with a quarter million dollars stuffed in their parka arm sleeve and so when you give him the invoice say my invoice for that was like forty two hundred dollars he's got this bundle of hundreds and he any 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 thumbs through it and stops right in the middle like like a like a card shark or something uh, but basically they're sequential hundred dollar bills and he's he's basically going to the number that is 42 and giving me the money and here you go you know and uh that is really sweet that's when you know things are good yeah that's old school <laughs> i have one more question uh that i'm looking at right now and i always love to hear old school stories about old school alaska and i was wondering if you wouldn't mind ending this podcast on a story or a memory that you feel is kind of quintessential or classic spinard <sighs> okay so old school story god dang well see now I'm, I'm i'm like there's so many um to 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 sort of draw from i mean see it's like you know to, to kind of have a capsulization like in a hook you know uh there's so many uh characters that have have come in and out you know of my life and uh you know working at the bike shop for more or less 12 years and looking out that window across northern lights you know and seeing 
multitude of kids who I thought were for sure going to die riding their bikes across that street, you know, mm-hmm. or, or just the activity. Like I did the Blaine's mural for, uh, I think about 10 years. And again, that's just right on the corner of Spinard in Minnesota. And there'd be 300 kids in that little area on the wall there. And the way people, you know, are driving and doing and being on that corner for like a whole day, it's it's just amazing that not more people are dead, you know. Uh, but you know, it, it's just I don't know. Uh, there, there's a multitude of things come in. I guess maybe if you gave me a better parameter, you know, old school means like, you know, I, I think back on you know the early days of Coots, which I was not a drinker back when I was a young adult, but how rough that place used to be and how the guns would be pulled out and and it was it was a lot shakier and there were a lot more people you know totally jacked up and ready to go mm-hmm. but, um, I, I think there was a feeling that you could get away with more you know back back in the day and now it's it's probably feels differently uh, than that I do think that people get used to operating on their own terms a lot up here and when they get told to like wear a mask or something mm-hmm. they lose their shit <laughs> for the this current pandemic that we're in right now right <laughs> yeah this yeah um yeah i i i guess you know the whole thing of, of like uh, uh I, I tell the story of the the spinard beauty contest that i was asked to to, to be a part of and i you know played a song for them but i got you know disqualified there was a a part in it where you you know, flick the bottle cap into the garbage can and somebody had cut my bike shorts real real short and when i sort of knelt down to do that i i had a, a costume failure and totally got points taken off so i i got like third place in the in the contest it was it was catastrophe and by costume failure what exactly do you mean or my nutsack fell out of one side of my shorts <laughs> 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 yeah, so it can happen to the best of them, you know. <laughs> so yeah. Um, anyway, I, 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 that was not part of the show, actually, you know. But uh, I, I think the whole, you know, the whole thing of living the uh, the street, you know, for as long and seeing the kind of the transitions and and. You know, for a long time, I never had a car. I was it was just the the bike and and the scenes on the bike or the skateboard. Um, the old school stuff to me is just it, it. There were just so much fewer people, and 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 folks that you know it, it didn't you know, like a lot of my older acquaintances. There's always something up with them. You know, it just seemed like they were trying to figure something out. And, Sort of like lost souls, maybe, or or something, you okay. know. But but there there was this like renewal, you know. When you say like fleeing, you know, when people come up here, they're fleeing. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes it is a part of fleeing, but it's also a part of, of 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 arriving, you know, to your life, arriving to this place of 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 freedom, and uh, and and your parents aren't here, you know, that kind of thing. And then now now you get to kind of here it is, you know, do 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 with it what you want. And again, getting back to that kind of opportunity, uh, we do have a, a like a, like a, a twin 
identity. At night, Anchorage, I think, come, becomes a very dangerous place. And being that I'm usually tucked in bed by then, you know, I don't, I don't exactly know this. I have never had any kind of, uh, you know, been been mugged or any any sort of. My last scuffle was, I think, I was 14. You know, at West High, and that was, that was that was it. You know, but but people, I hear stories. It's like, oh shit, you know, really, you know, I, and and the statistics seem like horrible too. But most, I don't know. I that's what I don't get about. You know, people talking about how. Uh, you know, guys are pigs at work, and da 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 da, and look, all these like problems. And I just don't know any of these folks. You know, I I just haven't seen as much of it sort of firsthand because because of my my limited maybe exposure or, or something. But but you know it exists. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh it, oh definitely, and especially on the videos uh, that you see, and and that that just seems even more unbelievable though you know when you actually get proof of it you know and there's this place that's somewhere in the southeast or something uh of, of the united states and you know they're just going off on this horrible tyrant of, of words and you know berating someone and, and just losing their shit you know it's just like we just can't do that up here we you know i think that that they're they're there's like the guy with the grass, you know, that your friend, you know, mm -hmm. but for most part, people seem to, 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 to not want to overreact and, and they're a little, they're a little bit more dialed down, you know, uh, but uh, that's, you know, that's just my opinion. And, you know, when you're always looking for like the Spinard experience, you know, I, I was, I've done interviews with people and, and sometimes people go, uh, we don't talk about that, you know. It's like, oh shit, you know, it was that rough? And I do think in the fifties, especially, it was really rough. You what know? don't they talk about? Well, I think you know that there was uh, uh, typhoid. There was some kind of thing with the with the uh, the septic systems, and there was uh, some kind of a disease kind of going around, and and you know, not enough heat, you know, not enough food, not enough money. You know, people really, really broke and, and that. So, yeah, I think it was really hard, hard times. And we are not really in that, you know. So we go back to 71. I always think of that as the last moments of the frontier Alaska. Because, you know, once the pipeline got going and, and all those yahoos from Texas and Oklahoma came up here, and then the oil companies were able to purchase legislatures, our representatives and senators, then it fouled up the whole, like, you know, Jay Hammond's Alaska. It fouled up this whole kind of almost a Switzerland of sorts, you know. Uh, you know we're, we're really uh, focusing on the common good that the Constitution of Alaska says all of those resources belong to the people of the state, you know, and it's a very clear message, you know, that everybody matters, everybody's a part of the thing. And then the corporations came up here and gave us the fucking super job, man. And, and you know, like, why do we have a $17 million train depot at the airport that nobody can use except princess fucking tours? You know, that's fucked up. That's the first thing we should take back right there is have that fucking train depot. And I don't care if they have a kitty car running up and down to, to downtown. Do something, you know, it can be done. And the main reason, and I'm I'm almost confident of this, is the gravel train. You know, the gravel train that's 100 trains long, and it goes down to Seward or wherever the hell, 
it's like, oh, that's their money bag. That's, you know, because their, their passenger stuff doesn't work. But getting back to, you know, Alaska, it was, it, it, we, we need to get it back because this whole colonization bullshit has got to end. And I think just like the statues and everything else, that, that train depot, not for the practical nature of it, but to, for what it represents, that princess tours can come up here and fucking own us, you know, and it's bullshit. And I'm sorry that the Southeast is probably suffering hard from not having tour boats. But, you know, there is an upside. I mean, some of those inland waterways can be restored because those ships aren't taking big fucking five-gallon dumps in our, in our bays, you know. That's also got to stop. It is, it's just, you know, we have to just stop having us handled by other people. We have to take more of uh, initiative ourselves and say fuck no you're not going to come up here and set up shop you know pebble mine is done you know and hopefully we can reverse what they've done so far well duke i think that we could probably talk all day <laughs> if you let me i'm done i i wanted to say one more thing no i'm done i'm sorry i, I no 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 I, I i am honestly i have enjoyed this immensely this has really been great uh that does it for all my questions yeah, right on this has been really great and yes. if i see you driving around town on your scooter i'll be sure not to race you <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I appreciate it. <laughs> you can support local grassroots journalism at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.